to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, over the past few weeks during this turmoil that we've been going through, you might have heard the expression, the long march through the institutions. Maybe you're already familiar with it, maybe not. But we at the New Culture Forum have just produced a new book called The Long March, How the Left Won the Culture War and What to Do About It. I'm delighted that today I'm joined by the author of that book, Mark Sidwell. Mark was the managing editor of City AM, head of personal finance at The Telegraph, and is now deputy editor of Smith magazine. Um, Mark, thank you very, very much for coming in. This is kind of an extraordinarily timely project and a timely book. But we can't sort of like necessarily assume that everyone immediately knows what we're talking about by the long march. Can you explain what is this concept of the long march through the institutions? Sure, thank you, Peter. And, and it's worth saying that part of the secret of the long march is that people don't know about the yeah, long march. Yeah, right. The idea is that if you do something over a very long period of time, over decades, uh, then people don't really notice the changes and it's very hard to manoeuvre against it. And the idea of the long march was that over that sort of period, you would move into the institutions of a society and you would take them over for a particular point of view. And this was a strategy of the revolutionary left. It was crystallized in 1967 by a guy called Rudi Deutschke in Germany. Yeah. And then it was taken up in America and elsewhere. And while it's not true to say that there was sort of an active conspiracy that directly led from that to what we see today, it's certainly true that people drew from that. And it was a very good prediction of what, of what turned up. Because now we look around and we see that over time, our institutions in Britain and indeed elsewhere uh, have been taken over by ideas culturally of the left that have really transformed them in profound ways and now make it very difficult politically for anyone who wants to propose uh, right-wing or conservative uh, policies. So really the, the idea of the Long March, you say, was sort of crystallised in the 60s, the actual phrase, but um, what was the, it goes much further back than that, doesn't it? I mean, uh, there's this fellow Gramsci um, and the Frankfurt School mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know these things are knocked about an awful lot but can you explain exactly you know where what they were thinking and why they thought it? Yeah sure so these these are all revolutionary Marxists these are people who want to see um, uh, a communist state uh, communist socialism as a better way to run a society they're very worried about uh, imperialism and colonialism in the West. They think the capitalist society is fundamentally flawed and, and terrible. Yeah. Uh, and what they try and come up with is a way of making that happen. And they see the failure of traditional revolutionary Marxism, of, of trying to get to communism at the point of a gun in the West. And they don't see that collapse after the First World War. And they're trying to think of new ways of approaching it. And what they start to come up with is a sort of cultural form of Marxism. Yeah. Uh, and that was the idea of the Frankfurt School, which was founded specifically to work on cultural versions of Marxism, a remarkably successful institute, largely because its key figures, who were very brilliant men in their own way, just with very perverse ideas, I'd argue, uh, went over to America uh, and took their ideas with them and were greatly fated in institutions there and key intellectual networks. But as well as the Frankfurt School, the name that's most often associated with this approach is Antonio Gramsci. And he was an Italian communist. He was locked away for years by Mussolini, who thought he was very dangerous. And uh, the court at the time said, we need to put this brain in prison for years. And indeed, that happened. But he wrote while he was in prison. Right. Now, the, these works, the prison diaries, were not translated for a long time, not known of for a long time. 
they start filtering in much later in sort of post-war period they're entering into the intellectual uh, circles uh, in the West and it's out of those ideas out of these sort of German theories coming from the Frankfurt School Italian communism uh, coming from Gramsci that, that come up with this idea this idea of, of sort of Marxism through cultural revolution but then in the 60s in in Germany you get the the new left which was a sort of real sort of resurgence of um, an attempt by the young to change society and, and you know, take it over completely. Not, not unlike what you see now. And we're familiar with the riots in 1968 as one expression of that. Right. And there was a very violent wing of that, again. Uh, the, the, uh, the Red Army faction, uh, the Bader Meinhof gang in, uh, in Germany, which was literally kidnapping and killing people, ultimately the kidnappings in Entebbe, uh, examples of that. Uh, a very nasty strategy, of course. And then there was another wing that said, well, maybe we can do this peacefully. And that was Rudi Deutschke who said, hmm, well, instead of that, maybe we can go to the same end. He still wanted to destroy yes. what we had. Yes. But he said, we can just do it slowly yes. and quietly through a long march revolution. So uh, with the, uh, with the um, uh, basic cultural Marxism we're talking about, yeah, the revolution, I think they meant, it was meant to be here, wasn't it, originally? But uh, basically we were talking about the fact that they um, uh, were impatient, if you like, with the workers not rebelling. Exactly, yes. And the workers have always been a great disappointment to revolutionaries. And this is one of the, the important things to understand. I mean, that was entirely incorrect. Yes. Uh, a very weak understanding of how things actually change culturally in a society. And if you look into it, and there are many examples you can look at in history. You can look at the rise of Christianity and you can look in the 20th century at the rise of uh, socialist ideas in, in the UK and also free market ideas in the UK. And what you see is they move along elite networks. It's elite people, uh, high levels of intellectual discourse, aware new ideas and often these dangerous and rather odd and impractical ideas coalesce and start to really influence a society. And what, what the vast mass of people think doesn't necessarily matter that much and that's that's where the power really is and that's of course what in a sense think tanks uh, learnt as well. Yes. When we talk about the institutions again I might sound as like I'm being extremely like uh, you know simple-minded here but when we talk about institutions what on the whole are we talking about? You know, what, what do they mean by institutions? <laughs> one of the challenges of a long march strategy and one of the reasons why it's not very often taken up is very difficult to maintain over the time it takes mm the ideas and the ideological consistency and a movement. You know, if it's about individuals, you know, a few years, you know, how long can you keep people's enthusiasm going and their intellectual focus going? Institutions are the way that you can keep things going for a very long time and gain traction. And institutions can be, can be all kinds of things. We're talking about organizations that build their own culture and sustain that over multiple generations of people. Uh, so an example would be um, magazines, mm. but also things like the church, uh, media, uh, bureaucracies, uh, things that have a longer shelf life and, and have a sort of culture of their own. Right, I see. Um, in the book, what, I, what is very clarifying about this book is that it, it's a, it's, it is chronological, isn't mm -hmm. it? You go right from basically 100 years, would you say, about 100 years? Yeah, sort of, uh, sort of late 19th century, the rise of the Fabians, that, that kind of yes. thing, yes. Um, although we hear a lot about cultural Marxism today, we do hear a lot about that, um, you know, 
I think if you look back from what I see in your book, is that is a zigzag approach. It's all sorts of different influences. No one's saying everyone's some one sat in a room mm -hmm. with a load mm -hmm. of conspirators. Mm -hmm. No one's saying that, are they? Yeah, no, and it's important to get that across because a, a way this uh, concept is often dismissed is to say, well, that's just conspiratorial nonsense. Yeah. And of course, in the sense that it's one great campaign of sub subversion that has succeeded, that's, that's not true. But it is true that there was active subversion in the UK over that period in various different forms. There was active subversion uh, from the communists. There were people who actually listened to Rudy, De Rudy Deutschke in the 1970s and did things like take over uh, polytechnics. The Polytechnic of North London, there's a, there's a book which actually captures what was done there. You know. Those things tended to be less successful, but the, the, the slower intellectual genesis of these ideas did happen. What, for example, at the North London Polytechnic, what actually happened there, Mark? Can you just yeah, sure. So there's a, there's a great book about this called The Rape of Reason, uh, and written by some, some people who, who were there at the time, um, Caroline Cox being one of them. And this, this is important about the the long march strategy is it is not a nice strategy. At the cutting edge it involves things like intimidation, really brutal tactics, the kind of things you see now on yeah, woke campuses yeah, yeah. you know, in the US. To get your people in and get their people out, you have to be willing to destroy people and intimidate them and scare them. You don't actually use violence, but you use everything short of it. And there was a sustained campaign by you know, radical people who wanted to destroy our society to take over that particular polytechnic. And you know, they were screaming outside meetings and they were lying about people. It was, it was very brutal and it, it's recorded in, in great detail. It's very clarifying. But as I say, as a result of that being so sort of public and, and horrible, they did take over some institutions like that. But that didn't, didn't provide the main sort of thrust of, of, right. of revolutionary change. Um, this would have been the what, early 70s? Something like something that. Something like that. It seems to me that, uh, you know, there is education uh, does feature hugely in this, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about a college there, but generally the educational, it is known, it has become known as the blob, right? Mm -hmm. The educational mm -hmm. establishment. Yeah. I mean, what part do you think then education has played in the dissemination of, of relatively, of left views? I, it's clearly very important. I mean, teacher training is a very interesting example. There's, um, it's, it's difficult to look at the evidence and, and be very clear exactly what happened. Some people do think there was active uh, subversion. There were probably some attempts by communists to move in. Certainly what happened is that people of a leftward disposition really took over teacher training in the UK very early. And this is an interesting example of people with the greatest, you know, sort of sense that they were doing the right thing, creating a law in an attempt to improve things. And they brought in the law in the 1970s saying, you have to have proper training to be a teacher. Well, it was exactly the wrong time to do that, yeah, because yeah. the 1970s was the heyday of these sorts of ideas, and particularly in those sort of circles. Right. So those ideas became kind of embedded in the training of all the teachers, yeah. and that that then starts to flow up a little bit, or at least starts to select for the kind of people who want to be a teacher and be in that environment, or to inculcate them into those ideas. They s but it's often not so much the indoctrination itself, and this is something I try and explain a bit in the book. What this does, even if you don't agree with it, is it sets the acceptable public discourse. So everyone knows, well, these are the things that it's proper to say, or that everyone knows it's okay to say. Mm. And that's part of what happens in the universities too. I think there's been, very significant, the massive expansion of university attendance, uh, which was you know, a legacy of Tony Blair, 
which only just really reached its sort of final playing out. Yeah. Uh, even now, just got to sort of 50% of the, the relevant demographic attending universities. Mm. Uh, now, some of the issue there is perhaps indoctrination and people coming away with these left-wing views, but I think a lot of that is, is public opinion. They know that that's the public opinion to have if they want to be sophisticated and in the right crowds. It's not necessarily that it's deeply changed their inner convictions, but it changes what can be said. Yes. And also what it does, and it's particularly true of universities more than schools, is that those are very important places for the evolution of these ideas. Universities are where uh, new ideas about you know, sort of cultural Marxism or identity politics are bred. And again, this takes a very long time. What we're seeing now is of new definitions of racism and of white supremacism take decades of intellectual work to build in the universities before they then move out along these networks. I think, uh, going back to teacher training, I think Malcolm Pearson, I think who, who's That's in right. your book, yes, 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 he yes. actually sort of looked at, looked at teacher training in the 80s, I think. And uh, there's something about the fact that I think there was a sort of, the whole thing had to be drenched in issues of uh, sex, race and class, isn't that right? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that seems to pretty much have been played out ever since. <laughs> It didn't help, and it was very hard, uh, you know, to bring in um, schools-based teacher training, which uh, is one of the things my, my mother worked on in her career, uh, and, I, and I know that, you know, when, when she was working with Michael Gove, and so I saw some of that firsthand. I mean, these were small attempts to, to change the system and start to get back to a more sort of practical approach. Uh, it was very difficult. There's a real sort of, and again, this is sort of the institutional power. Once you bring in a law and you set up these teacher training colleges and you own them, you own them for a very long time. Where does the Tory party and Conservatives stand in all this? So we're talking about the broad sweep, right? I mean, starting off in the 20s, roughly, mm -hmm. right? 60s, 70s, through to the 80s. Uh, what happened, to, what was the Tory response? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher is often thought of purely as a sort of political and an economic warrior. She's known particularly for the free market uh, reforms. But she was also very notably a cultural warrior and, and very consciously one. You know, and uh, you, you see um, Nigel Lawson as well writing about how they were trying to change the culture of the country to make it more self-reliant, more entrepreneurial, things like this. Yeah. They were trying to use politics to shape uh, cultural behaviour. And they had some success in that, and it was very interesting. But what happened after that, the arrival of Tony Blair, was that he kind of took on that sort of culture war, but with a sort of left-wing flavour and kept some of the... Uh, the economic reforms, but really brought in very different ways of thinking about the culture. And the power of Blairism really has informed our culture ever since. And I'd argue we're still very much in a sort of Blairite politics. Mm. Blair was seen as the heir of Thatcher, which he was to some extent economically, culturally very, very different. Mm. And Cameron, of course, was the heir to Blair and indeed played up to that. Theresa May, very much in the, in the Cameronite mould. Uh, it, you know, going further than anyone would think a Conservative Prime Minister would go on things like gender pay gaps and, and this kind of thing. And even though Boris Johnson might be seen as, as a different kind of character, yeah. I think you're still seeing signs of, of that continuity playing out. It, it's uh, interesting people don't really think of Thatcher in cultural terms, mm, do they? No. I mean, I, th I think what, what one thing is uh, quite interesting about Blair, I mean, we've had Peter Hitchens on a couple of times. And he's convinced that the, the danger of Blair and his government and the effect in terms of left-wing left politics 
was far greater actually than anything that Jeremy Corbyn came up with. Would you go along with that? Yes, I think I think Blair is probably our worst prime minister in our history. I think really? he's done well, you see, it's damage that it's almost impossible to work out how you reverse. I mean, the massive expansion of the universities, yeah. again, at, at just the wrong time, just as they were becoming much more radical and as uh, you know, those upper classes, the educated classes, yeah. were becoming much more left-wing. Uh, it was a huge problem. Really um, corrupting the structures of government, which is, is very important, a sort of management of the press, um, moving away from the parliamentary checks and balances, at which you know Boris Johnson is still using all of those systems yeah. of uh, favoured journalists and announcing things through them and newspapers rather than in Parliament, so you don't have proper scrutiny. Uh, there were some very corrupting things that went on. Also, there was the thing that I remember, particularly about the Blairite years, particularly the, the, towards the beginning, up to about two thousand, mm. where it was very much this sort of idea of year zero you know, that somehow our history and, and the institutions such as monarchy and parliament and even actually trade unions in, in a way, mm. they were all to be shunned, put to one side. They were kind of demeaned, mm. weren't they? I mean, this is part of the same thing, isn't it? Sort of? Yeah, yeah. It's, and this was the sort of the chilling effect. You had some of these sort of free market ideas, which, you know, good things, but completely divorced from tradition, completely divorced from any sense of sort of historical um, belonging and, and things that needed to be held on to. And that, and that you know, that, that wasn't enough to, to hold things together. And then also you saw uh, a brilliant uh, skill for putting placemen into the quangos. Uh, Blair and then Gordon Brown after him devoted enormous energy to this, really from the beginning and all the way through to the end of the, uh, of the Brown premiership. They're making sure that their people were in these uh, government-appointed roles that, again, very difficult to get people out of. Nothing to do with parliament, nothing to do with elected uh, officials, but with enormous power and influence to shape uh, how we behave and, and what rules we have to live by. You see, I think this is a, a very, very um, fundamental thing because people will turn around, some people will turn around and say, well, what are you talking about? You know, we've got a Tory, a Tory government now with a 80-seat majority. Mm -hmm. In fact, we've had you know, Tory governments for more than we've had Labour. And yet, the drift of society appears solidly leftward. And this is what, you know, perplexes people. I totally, totally mm -hmm. understand mm -hmm. that. And this is really what you're talking about, is that when you talk about quangos, when you talk about the institu institutions around what is just the political part, they are essentially of the same mind, aren't they? Which is a leftward one. Yes, and that, that's why the blob is a, is a useful term yeah. which sort of expands out from just talking about education, which is really where it started, to talking about the whole system. Because it doesn't really have a face, it doesn't, you know, it's not like you can have an election or something. And it all protects itself, it, it's very difficult to attack. It's like a, people have often said, uh, particularly about the, the educational blob, it's like a fog. You know, you, you charge at it and it just sort of vanishes and then reforms behind you. Uh, it's very, it's very difficult, and you know, there are people who work on this problem and say, well, we need to get conservative appointments into these various places. This is very hard to do. They've been yeah, trying yeah. without, without much success, particularly you know, Mark Wallace and Conservative Home. But the people who want to sit on Quangos are, are often left wing, and even, right. even the people who, who aren't left wing who might go for it. I mean, these are very hostile environments to them. Uh, they don't necessarily want to put themselves through that. I, I think, uh, you know, yes, I, I can, you can quite understand, uh, particularly the way that you might be treated. Um, you know, when you look at the picture now, and you sort of look at the institutions the way they are now, 
uh, my experiences of the of the arts world. It seems to me it's particularly chronic there. I don't mean it's all been you know there's been entryism or whatever, but you've got a position, you've got a situation now where people think entirely the same on every given subject, mm. and it's mm. always what you would call well, soft left or, or hard left mm. or whatever. But to the point where it's you know almost become paralysing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's this sense, I think, of, of what can be said in public. So yeah. whatever people may think, and I, everywhere there are, of course, lots of people who are biting their tongues or just going along with it. Uh, but that doesn't matter because they all know what it is they're allowed to say. And that really constrains debate. And as you say, paralyzing. And I think that's an important point that I wanted to get across. Because often seen that this is just, oh, well, one side or another has won. But what it's really about is the paralyzing of institutions. Institutions that have gone over to the culture war, to left or right, are losing their ability to do their jobs. A police that spends all its time monitoring Twitter for yeah, wrong yeah. think yeah. is not catching burglars or you know, maintaining law and order. Mm. This, is, this is a problem across our institutions. And I think we see that very clearly now, sadly. You know, I finished writing the book and then we had this giant crisis came along very soon after and I didn't feel very cheerful about it because I thought, well, I've just been writing about what sort of state our institutions were in and I, it seems to have gone that way. You know, we have not handled it well. I think this is, this is part of the problem. It, it's hard just being an institution and being effective. Once you start having to be political as well, it diverts your attention and it weakens your ability to do what you should be doing. Well, yes, as you say, you know, you finished just before this current cultural, I would say it's a cultural crisis that's going on now. Uh, and in fact, it's it's remarkable timing, the book, Mark, because you know we've seen what appears to be no pushback in on an institutional level mm. to mm. all the various uh, attacks that are happening. Um, and indeed, if anything, sort of people have been jumping on side, you know. Um, and I think this is what demoralises people so so very much. I mean, I think you do at the end of the book come up with some things that maybe we should do or try to do. Um, what do you think the fundamentals are of that? What, what, you know, how can, the subtitle of the book is how the, how the left one, culture one, what we can do about it. So mm. what can we do about it? I think the first thing is understanding where we are. And I think a lot of people think, oh, this is an ongoing war and we just need to fight. And then they're rather surprised when we end up where we are and things yeah. moving as fast as they are. The war is over because there's so much institutional power. And you really have to understand where we are in order to, to think about what we do. It, it's ineffective to try and fight as if you're still, you know, on an equal footing. Even though Boris Johnson is Prime Minister, he's not in some ways in office because of this sort of, you know, culture around him, this sort of hegemony of the left in all the institutions, to use one of their fancy terms. Uh, so one of the things we need then is for Boris Johnson to do what Margaret Thatcher did, and really no one has been successful since. And fight the culture war politically, because he does have enough power, you would mm. think, to do that. Mm. Of course, he's been ill and there's everything else going on, but th th it, uh, it does matter. He does have some real ability to do that. It's not that culture always just, you know, is downstream of, uh, is upstream of politics. You can drive it the other way, but it requires real commitment. And often, I think, you know, people in government and people on the right are not very interested in cultural issues. I think they're minor, but they're really not. They affect everything else as well. I, I, I couldn't agree more. What do you think the likelihood is of him doing something like that? 
I mean, we've seen a few things. There was the, the decision about self-identifying and, and gender reasoning. That's quite a large decision. But I think you can see from their nervousness around the Churchill statue and the, and the recent demonstrations, uh, you know, people backing off from their comments about taking the knee, they're very worried. They, they don't want to, to jump in and, and stand up. And unfortunately, all they're doing is being a sort of conservatism which is really just uh, the left's positions driven at the speed limit. And right. that okay. doesn't change the direction of travel. You know, that, that, that's pointless. That's you, need, you need to have new yeah. ideas. New ideas are hard, of course, and that's, that's less for the politicians. That's more at the intellectual end. Mm. We do need those, but those take a very long time, again, to be generated. The ideas that we're seeing coming to fruition now have been worked on over a very long period of time. The same was true of you know, Hayek and Friedman and all those brilliant people working on the free market ideas that, that made such a big difference in the 1980s and, and subsequently. We could do with that now, but that's going to take a long time to work up and play through. And you've got to be in it for the long haul, as people have been in the past. So a generational fight, in other words. At, at that intellectual level, it really is a generational fight, yes. And in the meantime, I think people should prepare themselves for, uh, you know, as kind of occupation, in which you're either going to be a resistance fighter in some ways, in which you'll work out how to be a dissident, and live with the problems that that brings in your life, like being cancelled, losing your work. I see people getting that already. Um, or maybe you're going to try and find a sort of um, what's been called the Benedict option in the US, or perhaps like a Firefly, the US TV show, where you, you go off to the fringes of society and try and uh, uh, live there and, and, uh, and avoid the worst of it. But it seems likely that it's going to get worse before it gets better. One thing that's very interesting, and I think, uh is particularly during this latest crisis that we've had and also during the whole woke movement that was you know we've been talking about on this show mm. endlessly past a uh, year is the way in which corporations the way in which capitalism the big corporations seem to be entirely at one mm -hmm. with a kind mm -hmm. of cultural revolution they have they pulled off something very very clever have they not yes it's fascinating it's fascinating and, you know, I mean, people were on this a long time ago. Milton Friedman wrote a, a very famous essay in which he said that, you know, companies should just be interested in profit. And that's often been demonized um, precisely because the left understood what he was doing. And he explicitly states what he was doing, which was cutting off that supply of money uh, from the left. Uh, but, he, but he lost, and the left won that argument. And that, again, it's a sort of a way of getting money and influence without uh, democratic control. Yeah. And look, I worked for a bit at the Telegraph. Telegraph is a very conservative institution in terms of its product, at least for the, for the most part, you know, the newspaper and so on. Lots of people, great minds at the top of it, great allies in this sort of fight. But as a corporation inside the office, it's as woke as any other large really? company. It's an extraordinary <laughs> experience. Yeah, yeah, you know. I was going to ask, actually, what, what, is your, what is your experience in your life being generally of the long march. I mean, it's, it's a retrospective thing, isn't it? You can only look back and say, oh, actually, well, that, that and that, you know, I mean, what has your experience been, if anything? I mean, I suppose it's accelerating too, it seems to be. And so I would be even more nervous about, about starting out now as a, as, yes. as a young person. But I, I have a similar interest in the arts and theatre. And when I was coming up, it became very clear to me that unless you were prepared to sort of burn Thatcher in effigy, that probably wasn't a nice place to be. I'm a church-going Christian, and it's quite hard mm. to escape what's happened to the Church of England, which has been, you know, appalling, mm. appalling during this crisis in, in various ways. Um, so that, that's difficult. Uh, 
you know, I, I think you just see it everywhere. Academia, again, you know, I'm, I could have been an academic and one of the reasons that I'm not is that it was a completely uncongenial place to be yes. in the humanities department. Yes, because it's sort of almost like one's sense of oneself is sort of attacked, you know, in a way mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And it's not, not just beliefs, but in fact, we've arrived at a position where in fact, it, this is something dysfunctional about oneself, you know, mm -hmm. that in some mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, well, look, Mark, I mean, uh, thank you very much for talking to us. I think that it is an extraordinarily important book, um, and I think it, it's very clearly written, and, and, I, and I think uh, it will you know, be extremely helpful to people. Um, so thank you very much you know, for talking to me about it. Um, the book is called The Long March, How the Left Won the Culture War and What to Do About It. It's by Mark Sidwell. Uh, you can get it. Basically, if you want to, you can go onto our website and you can download it to read for free. Uh, or you can also get it on Amazon or indeed via the website. Um, but it is a, a, a very timely uh, and important contribution at this very moment in time. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for watching this week and we shall see you next time. Thank you.